Hello, everyone. I'm Siri Vaith, Executive Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Research Institute, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to what will be a very informative Q&A session with Dr. Hannah Fan. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody that the information and insights shared during this recording should not be used for self-diagnosis, uh, treatment, or as medical advice. And before you make any changes to your healthcare regimen, please consult with your healthcare team. I also want to thank our sponsors who've made this recording uh, possible. Thank you to Vertex, Genentech, Gilead Sciences, Kiesi USA, and Beatrice. So for those of you who were at our recent uh, CF National Education Conference, you had the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Hannah Fan, And we have now released that presentation on YouTube. So for those of you who missed it, you can watch all of that. She is a wealth of information. Uh, during her presentation, there were so many questions from people who were very engaged with uh, the information she was sharing uh, that we did not have time to get to them. And we are so grateful to Dr. Fan for coming back uh, to answer these questions. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, Dr. Hannah Fan, she is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the College of Pharmacy and faculty affiliate for the Susan B. Meister Child Health Evaluation and Research Center at the University of Michigan. Dr. Fan practices as a clinical pharmacist specialist in pediatric pulmonary medicine with a focus in CF at CF Mott Children's Hospital in Michigan. So Dr. Fan, thank you so much for coming back to share more of your expertise with us. Uh, and with that, I will turn the mic over to you. All right. Well, thank you for having me back. I know there were quite a few questions from the lot, from the uh, original presentation, so I'll hopefully address some of those today. Um, and of course, as always, I have no disclosures um, to talk about regarding the material today, but some stuff we'll be talking about is off-label um, and obviously not um, may not be FDA approved for the indication of cystic fibrosis. Um, so as an overview for complementary therapies, as a brief introduction to our Q&A. Just as a reminder, our complementary alternative therapies or CAM, which is the most common term, can refer to anything including dietary supplements, herbals, alternative medicine, um, alternative and herbal supplements. And when we talk about complementary alternative, people tend to lump the two together. However, um, we should really think about it as two different entities. When we're talking about complementary, that means we're using a non-mainstream approach together with conventional medicine. And that's in partnership with conventional medicine, such as with your CF care team. Alternative is more referred to when we talk about using a non-mainstream non approach in place of conventional medicine. Um, and so we'll start with some of the questions. All right, the first question is, what is meant by movement therapies? So this came up in our questions um, after the presentation. And so what I mean by movement therapies is more in the realm of like the physical, so the dark blue square that you see on the screen on the left. So movement therapies can include meditation, breathing and relaxation techniques, yoga, tai chi, sort of like exercises, dance, art, those sorts of things. Um, acupuncture somewhat overlaps with that as well. Um, and then manual therapies and using like heat and cold therapies, those are considered um, those types of therapies. So the focus of the previous talk that was recorded is more on natural products and nutritional um, complementary uh, health approaches. So another question that someone had asked is, do you feel like people under report 
And do you believe people underreport for the fear of antagonizing the medical team or seeming non-adherent? So just as a reminder, like we did a survey of folks in the CF community a few years ago, and um, they did report, and this was an anonymous survey, so they could be very open, um, that about over 50% of adults with CF have reported to have used CF or CAM in the last 12 months of that survey. Um, and that uh, for caregivers of persons with CF of all ages, um, about 40%. However, another 20 some percent have considered it. Um, the reported amount of CAM, if you look in the literature, it varies from like in the teens and percent to the, what you see here in the survey in 50% or plus. So it does vary from center to center in terms of reporting. I do feel that it is underreported, um, personally, anecdotally. Um, and maybe the partner, part of that is the lack of partnership or the area for improvement of partnership by our care team members. And being a care team member myself, I try to be mindful of that and try to exercise that as much as I can. Um, but, uh, you know, in asking CF care teams and asking persons with CF and their caregivers, do you feel that CAM is discussed during clinic visits? This survey question was very um, telling for me and for my uh, study team in that the um, people with CF, our patients and families that we take care of, you'll see that big dark blue bar, over 40%, almost 40% say they've never had that conversation. Whereas the CF care team, as you can see in the yellow bars, we feel that we talk about it. So there's a disconnect in terms of how often we feel it's being reported or talked about. Um, as persons with CF, I implore you to advocate for yourself and to talk with your CF care teams and ask questions. Um, don't feel like you're gonna be shamed, that you're gonna be judged. It should be a judgment-free zone when you go see your clinician, at least for me. Um, and I always preface this when I ask the question, are there any other supplements, herbals, or other products being used or are being inquired to be used? And I always try to make sure that my families know that it's a no, no judgment zone, that it's more for me to know for safety reasons so that I can help partner with you to look at things from a safety perspective and monitoring things properly. Um, so yes, I do feel it's a little bit underreported. There's that disconnect, but again, talk to your care teams, tell them that you wanna talk about it. And then hopefully that'll start up the conversation. Um, another question, um, do you feel like the electronic medical record is a potential barrier to recording some of these supplements? Uh, this particular person is a nurse and at their hospital, they include uh, a certain formulary when you pick a medication to put on the medication list. Um, and maybe that's the reason why it's not recorded. So I will say that documenting CAM or any sort of alternative complementary therapy can be challenging to record in the record uh, for some clinicians. It's more of a matter of knowing your electronic medical record and working with your IT group to make sure you have access to add things. A lot of um, electronic medical records do have the option, and a lot of folks may not know this, if you type in free text, it'll actually pop up a free text medication entry where the clinician can just free type the name of a product, how often it's used. And that's how actually we do it at Michigan Medicine is if I can't find it in our formulary, I will enter it as a free text so that at least it's part of the medical record as a patient reported product or supplement or medication. Um, and so making sure that that's in the record as part of the medication list, and then that will be transmitted to anyone who has access to that EMR. So if you have your chart shared with other hospitals 
other centers, they should be able to see it as well, hopefully. And I always recommend to clinicians not just to put the name of the product, if you can, if you have space on that entry, I always put the dose, the product name, what kind of dosage form is it? Is it a tablet, a liquid, a capsule, a chewable? And then I go above and beyond and I actually add the ingredient list in the entry so that if anybody wanted to know what was in there, they could see that. And I usually will do my due diligence and look to see what the ingredient list of that product is, whether it be something they bought online or through a particular vendor and try to find out what's in there. Um, and so then that will be in their electronic medical record and it should be part of things that are um, uh, discussed during visits so that people see it and they're like, oh, I see that someone reported you're using X, Y, and Z. Can you kind of talk me through how you're using it and you know how often you're using it and how it's working for you? Um, and then if you see that as a clinician, hopefully do the due diligence of looking up that product in preparation of seeing your patient and looking up to see, are there extra monitoring things that you need to do with your patients? Are there drug interactions potentially that need to be discussed so that you can come up with a plan of how best to manage it, whether it be to change the medication or discontinue or change the uh, complementary product that you're using. Um, another question that came up is a pretty uh, common product that I've seen. What are the benefits and concerns of taking N-acetylcysteine or NAC for persons with CF? So NAC is um, a mucolytic product. Um, it works by the sulfide bonds to break up mucus and products out there include oral. So I've seen tablets and capsules on the market. And those are products that are usually considered supplement or dietary supplements so not regulated by FDA. There's also inhaled or nebulized version of NAC. And that's actually pharmaceutical grade and it's used for other purposes other than CF. Um, we often use NAC, both IV or inhaled for um, uh, poison control for Tylenol toxicity or acetaminophen toxicity if you overdose on acetaminophen. Um, and so there is a pharmaceutical grade of that particular product. Um, some side effects are listed here. If you take it by mouth, you can have some GI upset, some heartburn. If you inhale it, it can make your airways twitchy and not so happy um, and have some wheezing and throat irritation. It can interact with blood thinners, such as anti or otherwise known as anticoagulants and potentially other medications. So it's always wise and good to talk with your providers before considering the use of NAC. There are some studies out there already um, that looked at NAC. There was a 2015 study that looked at a randomized control trial of actually taking it by mouth in a tablet form. And it's listed here with the dose and they took it for three week, or 24 weeks, three times a day, um, which is kind of a lot <laughs> um, in terms of frequency but they looked at if it changed a HNE activity in sputum, which is a marker in sputum that folks will look at. Their secondary outcomes in their study, however, were the ones that I would be interested in as a clinician in terms of lung function, exacerbation rate, um, and time to exacerbation and things like that, and symptoms um, of pulmonary symptoms in CF. What they found in this phase two trial, which included only 70 people, um, ranging from ages nine to 59 years of age, and they ranged in lung function from 40% to 85%, that it may help maintain lung function, but further studies are needed. Um, and that there were no differences in terms of the biomarkers or their primary outcome in looking at that HNE activity um, or symptoms or exacerbations. And so is there an oral product, PharmNAC, available pharmaceutical grade FDA approved? Right now there is not. And this was based to, this study was hopefully to look and see if that would be approved in the future. Right now at this time, I'm not aware of an FDA reviewed approved product NAC. So if you're finding NAC by tablet or capsule, it is under the dietary supplement category, which as I talked about in my previous talk, 
is not regulated by FDA. Um, and so it can have variability in terms of what the contents are. In 2013, um, a group looked at all different randomized trials and quasi-randomized trials of FIAL derivatives, which includes NAC or NAC, in CF and to evaluate its efficacy and safety. So the way that they do with systematic review is they looked at all these clinical trials and then they looked at the what they measured, what they used, and then the outcomes of those trials. So they kind of summarized all the trials into one, looking at it kind of like as a whole. Um, and of that, they found nine different trials that met their qualifications in terms of inclusion and being a randomized or quasi-randomized trial with that particular medication, either oral or inhaled. Um, of those nine, seven of those studies, and this is in 2013, were almost 10 years old or older. So really old studies from way back when. The authors of the systematic review found based on the data that they looked at at the time that they couldn't really have good evidence to recommend use, either inhaled or oral of a thiol derivative, including NAC in people with CF. So it's not to be used routinely. Now you can talk with your providers individually to see. I have a few patients of mine who've explored NAC from an inhaled standpoint. But remember, we also have other mucolytics on the market that have been used in CF for a very long time and have good efficacy and safety data, and that is Dornase Alpha, otherwise known as Palmazyme. Um, but this is the current data that's out there. The role in CF, I would say we need further studies as many of this product that I've talked about, we do need more studies for safety and efficacy reasons to make sure we know how much to use, what to use, and how to best use it. Um, so when I discussed turmeric in my presentation, someone wanted me to restate my opinion and my recommendation of turmeric for inflammation and what dose, what should I take um, as far as the dose. So the data that I presented are, are listed here, and this is just a slide representation of what I presented previously. But um, as you can see from this data, there's lacking data. So the first study in 2004 was in animals and mice. So I really can't recommend a dose for mice to people. And then the 2021 paper that's on the right here is just a protocol, like a description of a coming study that is study that is still being developed and still needs to be executed. And so at this time, there's really not a defined dose that I can say is useful for anti-inflammatory in CF that is a safe dose. Um, again, I would partner with your CF care team if you were curious about a product to see if it interacts with anything that you're taking. This particular um, supplement does interact through the same pathways as modulators do. And so if you are in a modulator, make sure that you talk with your CF care team. Um, it also work, interacts with transplant meds. And so if you're post-transplant, that's also a consideration. Um, so I can't re officially recommend any particular dose. My official stance is that I still need to know more data. Um, if my patients were to come to me and ask me, can I use this? The first thing I would look is look at their medication list, see if there's any interactions, talk about what the reasoning and the curiosity of why we want to use it. And then if we're planning to use a modulator, I'd probably put a backseat on the, the turmeric versus the modulator um, and then wait for more data, um, honestly. Uh, but depending on my patient's age and other characteristics, that's where we kind of co-produce a plan together if they feel super strongly about pursuing turmeric and looking at a monitoring plan. Okay, are there places on the web to compare and convert recommended daily values for different groups of people, meaning men, women, children, teens, and pregnant women? So that's a really broad question and I appreciate that question. I wish there was a place that had all of these places in one place. And depending on other factors like comorbidities, like if you have diabetes or if you're pregnant, if you have CF, if you have CF-related diabetes, bone density issues, 
those come into play in terms of what your recommended values should be. And so my recommendation is if you're curious about different uh, daily values of certain vitamins and minerals, to really talk with your dietitian because they have that background and training to talk about and look at the different factors that are involved with your particular health scenario to make the best recommendation for what you need for your daily value. All right, there are so many supplements on the market. Is there a way to know which brands are better quality, monitored, or reputable? Um, so as far as monitored, in my previous presentation, I had stated that FDA does not review everything that's on the market in terms of supplements. They don't have the bandwidth, unfortunately, to keep an eye on every company to make sure they're doing what they're doing from a supplement standpoint and to make sure that they're meeting certain quality um, and certain amounts and you know, stating what's on the label is actually what's in the bottle. That said, um, there are some companies that will undergo a verification program and these are the products that are labeled USP. So you might've seen these on some of your vitamin supplements. A lot of good vitamin supplement brands go through USP verification. And that's the US Pharmacopeial Convention Dietary Supplement Verification Program. So they actually will test products to make sure that they have the right amount and things like that. So it's a higher um, level of kind of a checks and balances and it's independent of the company. So the company does not do the testing and hand the results over to USP. USP does their own independent testing. So you want to look at products that have data of independent nonprofit testing that is aside from the company so that there's like another person checking and balancing what they're doing. Um, some colleagues have told me to check out consumerlab.com. It's a website that's out there. I want to preface it's not a federally regulated program. It's not like USP, but it's kind of like a consumer reports of products. If you, if you will, um, some folks have told me about this and they have not been shy about telling about certain products that may not be meeting up to standard or their standard. So that may be like kind of a consumer reports of products, again, not regulated by the federal government or regulated by, I think, healthcare professionals. I'm not sure who they hire for consumerlab.com, but it's kind of like consumer reports. If you're like buying a car, you probably wanna know what people are saying. Uh, do sinus rinses like Neomed count as camp therapy? So if you're talking about just Neomed saline sinus rinse, it's actually an over-the-counter product. It's sodium chloride 0.9%. Some providers may consider it CAM, but we actually, a lot of us recommend using saline sinus rinses as part of your care and CF to clear out all the stuff that's been building up in there. And a lot of ENT, ear, nose, throat docs do as well. Now, if we're talking about other sinus rinses that have other ingredients in it, it will depend on what the ingredient is, if it's considered complementary alternative, or if it's something that is actually like um, off-label prescribed by your provider. So for example, antibiotics that are added to saline sinus rinses, often a lot of our ENT docs will do that, or adding budesonide, which is a steroid, to saline to be able to rinse the sinuses. That's considered off-label, but not necessarily CAM because it is a prescribed product using a pharmaceutical grade product to compound it, if that makes sense. Good question. All right, other question. Part of my talk touched on Manuka honey. So one of our viewers wanted to know, is Manuka honey safe to use post-transplant? So um, this is the information that I presented in my last presentation. Given that Manuka honey does go through the same pathways as a lot of medications, cytochrome P450, 3A4, I would advise one, talk with your transplant team before starting anything. Um, and given the fact that it may inter interact with a lot of medications, including transplant meds, 
my first advice would be to not use it post-transplant, especially if you're still on your transplant meds that prevent rejection, because the worst thing to do is to cause those levels to go down and then you go into transplant rejection and that gets very complicated. Um, you don't want to do that. So definitely talk with your CF care team. There haven't been official studies in patients post-transplant, so I really can't speak to the safety and efficacy, but it's always worth a discussion and to know going in what the risks and benefits may be. All right. What does it mean when a therapy or supplement has a possible cytochrome P450 or CYP450 interaction? That's an excellent question. Um, if any pharmacists were watching, they're probably like, oh, I totally know about this. But anyone outside that realm is probably like, uh, what does that mean? So kind of give you like a mini pharmacology lesson in sense. So drugs can be a substrate and substrates are metabolized by what we call a cytochrome P450 enzyme, which are in your liver. Substrates are then metabolized to an inactive form or an inactive metabolite. Drugs can also be inducers. So if they are inducers, they increase the activity of that particular enzyme. And cytochrome 450 is a class of enzymes. 3A4 is a subclass of 450. So 3A4, if I've, you've seen it on my previous presentation slides, it's one of those um, enzymes that kind of metabolizes a lot of different types of drugs. So anything that undergoes 3A4, we're worried about, but anything that's P450 in general, cytochrome P450, the big class overall, we need to be careful about specifically how it's interacting. So inducers increase its activity. And when you increase the activity, you increase the exposure of the particular substrate or your drug to the enzyme. And then the drugs may also be called inhibitors. Your CF care team might call something an inhibitor. That means it decreases the enzyme activity um, and may increase the substrate enzyme. So if it's stopping the metabolism, it's gonna increase blood levels. If you have an inducer, it's stopping it. So it might decrease the exposure to that particular substrate or drug. So to kind of give picture to words, you have your substrate or your drug. So let's say it's your modulator that you're taking. Um, if a particular substance or um, complementary um, supplement that you're taking happens to be an inhibitor, it may increase the drug levels of your modulator and cause toxicity. If a particular supplement is an inducer in terms of how it's classified or how it works in the body, it may decrease the drug levels of your modulator and then cause failure of your therapy to work. So then your modulator may not work as well. There's another aspect um, that uh, is called a prodrug. You may have heard your care team members call something a prodrug once in a while. And a prodrug is not active in itself. Like a substrate is active in its own. A prodrug needs to be converted in the body to work. And so when you have a prodrug in the same sort of fashion, if you have something that inhibits it, um, again, you're gonna have failure risk because you haven't converted it to an active form. So it's basically a useless entity. You've just taken the prodrug. If the supplement that you're taking is an inducer, it might increase the amount of the active drug in your body and cause toxicity. So it depends on what your drug and your other uh, compound is, whether it be drug, supplement, drug and drug. So it depends on how it's working together that it'll cause the effects of either toxicity or decreased efficacy of the medication. So that kind of summarizes things a little bit. Um, just because it goes through P450 doesn't mean it interacts with everything. We just need to know specifically within P450, what subclass of enzyme does it work with? Does it work with 3A4? Does it do 2D6, 2C9? It's like an alphabet soup, which is 
cytochrome P450, what my pharmacy students learn is that it's an alphabet soup. And so if you're curious if a particular substance or a particular supplement that you're looking at has particular drug interactions, this is how your pharmacist or clinician is going to look at it. How does it go through the body? How is it metabolized? And is it possible that these could cross-link somehow? Okay. I did talk about slippery elm um, in my previous talk, and folks were wondering why were people with CF excluded? That's an excellent question. Um, so what I presented was the 16-week trial of a supplement that included slippery elm. It was a combination um, dietary supplement for GI disturbances. And one of the main criteria in the study was that they included people with CF. So some studies may exclude certain populations such as people with CF, um, because the investigator may be wanting to focus on a particular disease state, for example. So this particular author maybe wanted to focus on GI disturbances in certain other conditions that are um, gastrointestinal diagnosis, not including CF. Or they were concerned about other diseases that may confound or compound the results. So people with CF have very complex GI systems. And so their GI disturbances may be attributed to various things. And it's not as clear cut and clean for an investigator to study a compound this way. And so that, to make it easy on them, sometimes they exclude certain populations so they have a nice clean study to look at one population at a time. It's not to be you know, clicky and exclude certain populations. It's the way that some researchers will do it so that they can answer a question for a particular population and then move on to the next population to study. Uh, the hope is that you know, certain medications are studied across different populations so we get a good idea of how it works. All right. If inhaled, are vape pens more or less dangerous than smoking for CF lungs and overall lung health? And if people are vaping, is there a risk of secondhand exposure? Vapors often claim that it's just water mist blowing out. So about vaping. Um, vaping and smoking involves heating something and then inhaling the fumes that come off of it. So when you're vaping, it is a liquid and you're inhaling that vapor. Vaping liquid does contain potential potentially harmful chemicals. And many are in an oily sort of liquid base and the oil is needed so that it can deliver the necessary compounds that it's intended to like nicotine or THC. Vitamin E is also part of that formulation. And we're like, oh cool, vitamin E, healthy, right? But vitamin E, although safe to take orally like a capsule or as part of your CF vitamin, when you inhale it, it can be very irritating to the airways and actually can cause like long-term severe damage. Um, otherwise known as vape lung. So um, as, and in addition, the vitamin E plus the other compounds that are in your vape liquid. So there are other things that are in vape liquid. It's not just say THC or nicotine in water. It has to be in a suspension. So vitamin E is one thing. It may have diacetyl formaldehyde, which you guys know is not a very fun substance or acrolin, um, acrolein. And I'll talk about where those kind of fall in terms of the complications of vape. So some of you guys may have heard the term popcorn lung um, as a result of using something like an e-cigarette. And popcorn lung is an informal term for something that we call the diagnosis bronchiolitis obliterans or BO. It's damaged to the lower airways and it's associated with diacetyl, which is often found in microwave popcorn, thus the term popcorn lung. Treatment for this there's really no great long lasting treatment. It still needs to be further researched. So unfortunately, if you have popcorn lung, it's hard to treat. Another complication of vape-related lung injury is vape-related lung lipoid pneumonia. And that's when fatty acids like oils enter your lungs. 
And that's associated with the oily liquid base that a lot of the vape liquids are put in. Um, and there isn't a great treatment for this type of pneumonia only. Right now there's only supportive care. And so um, there are complications from vaping. Whether or not you have CF, both compounded, that could result in lung injury. And if you have CF and your lower airways are already um, not great, adding vaping to that equation could make things worse potentially. And another complication of vaping can include collapsed lung, otherwise known as a pneumothorax, which some folks may have heard of. So although vaping is not smoking smoke, you're still inhaling other things that are harmful. Secondhand vapor. A lot of folks, and I've heard, say, eh, it's just water. Don't worry about it. Um, it is a myth that secondhand emissions from e-cigarettes are harmless. These emissions can contain dangerous substances, not only those that we've talked about if you're actually inhaling off of the e-cigarette, including nicotine, but there's ultra-fine particles in the chemicals that are in there, diacetyl, like such as found in popcorn lung that causes popcorn lung, and then benzene is sometimes found in e-vape secondhand, which is car exhaust, part of car exhaust, so hopefully nobody wants to be smoking car exhaust or breathing in car exhaust anytime soon. Um, so again, vaping, not a great option. Um, if you're trying to quit cigarettes, it may be like a bridge. You can talk to your provider about that in terms of being a bridge. There are other ways to go through nicotine cessation and quitting um, that you can work with your provider for. Um, but e-vaping things other than nicotine, for example, cannabis has been formulated this way, THC. Um, there are harmful substances that get it to be in formulation and able to do what it needs to do from a THC standpoint or like feeling better standpoint, but there are harmful substances that come at a cost with that too. So uh, I wanna explore complementary therapies. How do I find a provider in my area? Someone had actually asked in there if I am available for additional consult. I am not, unfortunately. I am an academic clinical pharmacist and I am employed by the University of Michigan. I do not have my own signed consult business, um, but I give talks everywhere about sort of this sort of stuff. But um, and this particular uh, viewer said, my CF care team is not a resource for this, which I'm, I'm very sorry that they're not, I don't know if it's, they're not willing to partner or, but I'm sorry that you feel that way. Um, for me, partnership is number one. So if you can, please talk to your CF care team. They may not be able to tell you that they can recommend a certain product, but at the very least they can partner with you if you feel strongly about using something to be able to look at it and monitor for safety. Um, and tell you what the risks and benefits are and talk with you and maybe come to a decision together. Is this worth using or trying and setting a limit in terms of a trial period to try a product if that's something that you guys, that you are very strongly about. Um, I wouldn't feel like you can't talk to your CF care team. I think CF care teams all over are working on their partnership skills. Um, CF foundation is doing a great job in training CF care teams to be better about that. Um, and make sure you have open communication between you, your CF care team, and if you happen to find a complimentary provider, that they're in the loop with your CF care team. Again, partnership in all avenues so that we can provide safe and effective care for you. Um, there are resources for complementary and integrative health through the National Center of Complementary and Integrative Health, NCCIH, and it's through the NIH. Um, I did did my own research in terms of looking to see, you know, how do you find a naturopath? Because I've, I've had patients who have naturopaths to work with them. And there is an American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. One thing that I would advise if you're looking through that directory is that you 
try to seek someone who's a licensed provider because then they have to meet certain standards of how they practice. Um, and it should not be a substitute for your CF care team care. It should be again in partnership with your CF team care if all possible. All right. And then do I know of any planned studies looking for efficacy of liver support protocol on improvement of reported side effects from modulators, especially mental health issues? So there was a publication recently in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis this year in 2022. There was a center outside of the US who did dose adjustments of Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor, or Trikafta um, based on side effects, including behavioral health changes. That protocol is a center-specific protocol, so it's one center's experience, and they did release that, so it's published out there so centers can look at it. Um, and it involves dose changes or dose reductions, but monitoring using sweat chloride as like a secondary monitoring parameter to kind of see, is the sweat chloride changing to a point where it doesn't work anymore, like the dose is too low? Granted, this is one center's experience. It's not run through a clinical trial, so that protocol has not been vetted by a large population. But there is one study so far that I've, I've seen um, and I keep handy kind of as a reference for myself as a resource. I would imagine that down the road we're going to see more studies in terms of looking at how best do we manage side effects with modulators and how do we address those and can we do dose adjustments? What does that look like? Um, I'm hoping to see future studies and investigators investing time and resources towards that as well. So with that, I want to make sure that uh, I've addressed those were all the questions that I had wonderful questions, all great questions. I appreciate your guys' time in this. Um, and yeah, like it was fun. Dr. Fan, thank you so much. I learned even more and I already enjoyed and learned so much from your first presentation. So I thank you for taking the time to return to answer these questions. I thank everybody who submitted those questions. I always think when the one person in the room asked the question, there were probably about 25 who were thinking it, but too shy to ask. <laughs> so. Thank you for submitting. And um, for those of you who are watching this, if you have not watched the original presentation of the conference, we are releasing both on CFRI's YouTube channel as well as our Podbean channel. And so you can watch them. They, no pun intended, are very complimentary. And <laughs> to watch together, you will learn quite a bit. So Dr. Fan, I thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you. And uh, thanks to everybody who watched. Bye-bye.